A proclamation. It has been good to be together already. Um, we've done well to be here and sing these songs of praise to our God. I'm glad that you're here. If you have your Bible with you, would you open it up, please, to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. If you weren't with us this morning, it looks like most of uh, our group was here this morning with us, but we talked about the Sabbath rest and how Jesus is the ultimate example. Uh, of Sabbath rest, that he is the greater rest that we can have as Christians. And, and that lesson in my study of Sabbath rest actually began by, uh, was, was with a conversation that I had with a couple of Christians about the Sabbath day and uh, how the Sabbath day relates to us as Christians today. And, and this is ultimately what we were trying to do as we revive our question and answer series Their question, if I might summarize it, was something along this. The topic of our conversation, should Christians observe the Sabbath day? Now this is a common question, and perhaps it is more common than you would expect. According to a recent LifeWay research survey, more than half of Protestant churchgoers, 56% to be exact, say taking a day of Sabbath rest each week is a biblical command that still applies to Christians today. So the majority of those who identify as Protestant Christians say that a Sabbath rest is a command from God that applies today. 25% say that it's not, and 19% say that they're not sure about that. So let's look at this question together tonight and then maybe make some applications that come from it. What I'd like to do is I've done a lot of research trying to be fair about the case that is made for observing the Sabbath as Christians today. And since I'm going to go through these quickly, for those of you who are taking notes, I'm just going to put them all on the board and then we'll go through them together. This is is not intended to represent everybody who holds this position. There are other arguments that, that can and are made from time to time, but this is the most common reasoning why someone would say we must, we must observe the Sabbath day today. And so it goes like this. Number one, the Ten Commandments are God's law, what's sometimes called the moral law. Number two, the rest of the law of Moses are Moses' law, what we might call ceremonial law. And so because of that, number three, the Ten Commandments are eternal, but the law of Moses was temporary. And uh, we look at a number of passages in the New Testament. It is clear that that Christ did away with the the law of Moses, right? That we're not under that law today. That he nailed that law to the cross. That um, it was passing away and he fulfilled it. Those sorts of things. And so that's clear from the New Testament. And so the argument that's made is, well, that's referring to those ceremonial laws but there is a moral law, primarily the Ten Commandments, that was not done away with. And this distinction between a moral law, which sometimes is just the Ten Commandments, as it's argued, and sometimes it includes a number of other commandments, and a ceremonial law, that distinction is a fairly common one among believers, among our friends and neighbors who uh, believe in Christ. And even outside of this doctrine concerning the Sabbath, that is a fairly common distinction that's made. And so even if uh, you don't talk to somebody about the Sabbath, this could be useful to you in your conversations with people to have a good grasp of what the Bible says on that subject of, okay, what is the law of Moses and is there this distinction between the moral and ceremonial law? 
Number four, the Ten Commandments, based on this reasoning, were given to all men, but the rest were just given to Israel. So this is for everybody, this moral law, but then there were other laws just to Israel. Number five, the Ten Commandments were given before Moses, and they apply to all men for all time. And then number six, the rest of the law of Moses was just given at Mount Sinai. And then, number seven, the argument rests. One of the main ways in which this argument gains weight is that many Christians believe in a, in a vague sort of way, uh, maybe not, you can't quite put your finger on it, but, but many Christians and those who call themselves Christians believe that the modern day Christian Sabbath is the first day of the week, is Sunday. According to the same LifeWay survey, 70% of those who observe a Sabbath day do so on Sunday. Um, it's like that old movie, Chariots of Fire. Who's seen this movie? Let's see if I can date myself a little bit. All right, a lot of you have. If you haven't seen this movie, uh, you know this movie. It's the one that's like... No, don't know that one. Well, that's been, that theme song has been used in lots and lots and lots of movies since that time. And this movie is based on a true story about a devout Scottish Olympic runner who wouldn't compete on Sunday because he viewed it as the Lord's Sabbath. And leading up to the 1924 Olympics, there was some controversy with that, um, and he refused to compromise with that idea of com competing on a Sunday, and it's based on a true story. So someone who believes that we must keep the seventh day Sabbath comes up to us if we have this kind of vague notion that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath, and they ask us a very good question. They say, where in your Bible, where in your Bible do you see Sunday ever referred to as the Christian Sabbath? Or that even implied in your Bible that, the, that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath. And so we get to looking in our Bibles and we look in there and we say, well, I don't see that in my Bible. And that's exactly right. We don't see that in our Bible. And that's because the first day of the week is nowhere seen by example or commanded by God or even implied to be the so-called Christian Sabbath. It is the Lord's Day, the first day of the week on which Christ was risen, and a day when we come together for worship and to partake of the Lord's Supper. But it does not bear the restrictions on work and the requirement for rest that we see in that Old Testament Sabbath day. That's nowhere in our Bibles. So what do we do with this argument then that we see? What do we do with these six things, this argument that's made that we need to observe the Sabbath day? Well, consider four things um, that I would suggest in response. Should Christians observe the Sabbath? Well, number one... The Ten Commandments were not given before the time of Moses. That's the argument, right? That these are eternal, this is God's law, this is moral law. But that's, not, that's just not what we see in our Bibles. We know the Ten Commandments were given in Exodus chapter 20, but if you have your Bible open to Deuteronomy chapter 5, notice what we see in Deuteronomy chapter 5. This is Moses recounting the Ten Commandments, the second law, Deuteronomy. And in verse 1 of Deuteronomy chapter 5, And Moses called all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your hearing today, that you may learn them 
and be careful to observe them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, those who are here today, all of us who are alive. So this was God's covenant, he said. And it was not with our fathers. It was not the same covenant as with our ancestors. So what covenant was it that, that he was talking about? And what was included in this covenant? Well, keep reading verse 4. The Lord talked with you face to face on the mountain from the midst of the fire. Well, think back. We remember the story there at Mount Sinai. What was it that God said himself before calling Moses up on the mountain to tell him everything else? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 5, I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, and you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up on the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Verse 7, and he goes on through the Ten Commandments, including verse 12, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. That covenant that was not made with their their ancestors but was made with them included the Ten Commandments. And you say, well, wait a second. I know and I remember you're good Bible students. You remember back in Genesis it talks about the Sabbath day. So let's go back there to Genesis chapter 2. Wasn't that before the Ten Commandments? Of course it was, but let's look at that text in a little more detail. Let's read verses 1 through 3 of Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Again, if you were here this morning, these passages are are fresh on your mind. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. When did God sanctify it? When did he set it apart? Well, we keep reading in our Bibles and the rest of chapter 2 and into chapter 3. And there were no commands to Adam and Eve to keep a Sabbath day. And none were really necessary before sin because they were constantly enjoying that Sabbath rest. There was no need for a special day. And there are no commandments for them to keep the Sabbath after their sin either. And I ask you, who was it that wrote this in Genesis chapter 2? When was this written? These are the books of who? The books of Moses. Moses is the one who is recounting this to the children of Israel to explain to them why God is now telling them to observe the Sabbath. And if you were to go over to Exodus chapter 20, that's the reasoning that he gives because it's about this creation as we talked about this morning. When do we first see anyone observing the Sabbath day? Well, there is not one mention prior to the time of Moses. If you turn to Exodus chapter 16, this is the first time that we see this idea of a Sabbath day. In Exodus chapter 16, when they're in the wilderness and they receive manna from heaven, notice in verse 23. 
For six days you go out and gather. On the sixth day you gather twice as much as what you need. And in verse 23, then he said to them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today and boil what you will boil and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until the morning. So this is the first mention of Sabbath. But it's interesting when we read through this, what's their reaction? Well, some of them do what was commanded, but others do what? They go out on the Sabbath day and they look for manna to see if they can gather any and there's none to be found. Now, why would they do that if they knew the Sabbath day was supposed to be a day of rest? Well, they could have been hard-hearted and certainly they were, but there is nothing in this text that indicates they had ever heard of this before. This was not something that they'd been keeping all along. This was a new concept to the children of Israel. And so the Ten Commandments, including the command to keep the Sabbath, was given to Moses, and it was given to the people at that same time. So the Ten Commandments were not something that we saw before the time of Moses. And then secondly, the Ten Commandments were not something that were given to everyone. Um, Turn to Exodus chapter 31. Exodus chapter 31. Verses 12 through 18 are these commands that we read this morning concerning the Sabbath day. Um, We would do well to read those again, but let's just focus in on verse 17. So the Sabbath day and keeping the Sabbath day, no work on the Sabbath. What is it? Verse 17, it is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and he was refreshed. In verse 16, it talks about how this Sabbath day is a perpetual covenant, a sign between God and His people, between me and the children of Israel, God says. Um, I know it's an argument from silence, but when did God ever suggest that a Gentile was obligated to keep the Sabbath outside of their association with Israel? Now, if they were a servant... If they were a proselyte, a Gentile who had converted to Judaism, then yes, they had to keep the Sabbath. But among the nations, there was no such law, no such commandment among those people. It was something that was unique to the Jews. In fact, throughout history, we know that this keeping of the Sabbath was used against the Jews in wars with other nations. They were often attacked on the Sabbath day because these other people knew that the Jews kept the Sabbath And nobody else did. As we read this morning, the Jewish scholar Nahum Sarna says, The Sabbath is is holy and Israelite innovation. There is nothing analogous to it in the entire ancient Near Eastern world. We don't see it anywhere else except with the children of Israel. It was a special sign between them and their God. Number three, there is no distinction made between God's moral law and Moses' ceremonial law. This distinction that people talk about is not something that we find in our Bibles. Let me give you a couple of examples to show this. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. So Nehemiah comes from the period of the return from captivity. 
And he is recounting Ezra, who is restoring the law in Jerusalem after they return from Babylonian captivity. And he's going to read the law to the people. Now, what is this law called? Remember, the argument is there's God's law and there's Moses' law, moral law and ceremonial law. But is that distinction what we find here in Nehemiah? Read in verse 1 with me. Now, all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. And all the people gather, and they're going to listen to the book of the law of Moses being read. And so if we drop down to verse 8, what does it say? So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. So it talks about the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded them. And then it talks about the law of God. And those concepts are used interchangeably. Uh, Let me give you an example from the New Testament. Turn to Luke chapter 2, if you would. Luke chapter 2. When Jesus is going to be presented at the temple... Notice what it says in verses 22 through 24. Now when the days of her purification, that is Mary's, according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him, that is Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Verse 22, it called it the law of Moses. Now it says, the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So this is according to the law of Moses, verse 22, but also according to the law of the Lord in verse 23 and verse 24. And these ceremonies that are referred to here and quoted by Luke are found in Exodus 13 and Leviticus 12. These are not moral obligations to use their distinction. They're ceremonial, if you want to think about them in those terms. And yet still it's referred to as the law of the Lord. Um, uh, I, I pulled a quote just to show that I'm not misrepresenting this idea. This quote says, The moral law encompasses regulations on justice, respect, and sexual conduct, and includes the Ten Commandments. Again, some people say it's just the Ten Commandments. Others say it's the Ten Commandments plus these other things. But here's the problem with that. Moral law and ceremonial law is a man-made distinction that is not found in the Scriptures. And it might be helpful to us in some ways to, to classify these laws in this way, but God doesn't make that distinction in the text. And if you reason through it, you would see this clearly. Um, You know this already. What are, according to Jesus, what are the two greatest commands? This isn't Bible class, but it kind of feels like Bible class a little bit. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. And then the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself from Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. So let's turn to Leviticus 19 and verse 18. The first thing I would say about those two things is uh, 
Neither one of those are in the Ten Commandments. And if the Ten Commandments is this eternal law of God, nobody told Jesus that. Because Jesus says these are the two greatest commandments. In Leviticus chapter 19, notice verse 18. Leviticus 19 and verse 18. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. What is the very next commandment that we see in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 19? You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your livestock breed with another kind. You shall not sow your field with mixed seed, nor shall a garment of mixed linen and wool come upon you. The very next commandment is multiple seeds in your field and threads in your garment. If you're going to make a distinction between moral and ceremonial, I I don't know how you could get more clear than those two verses. And yet, what do we find? They're woven right there together with no distinction. He doesn't say, okay, now let me tell you the ceremonial laws. I've told you the moral, now let me tell you the ceremonial. In fact, my heading in the the New King James Version, so the man-made headings to help you see what these chapters are about, for chapter 19 it just says, moral and ceremonial laws. Because they're woven together throughout the law. And though we might look at these things and it might be helpful to us to to think about it in those terms, that is not a distinction that the Bible makes for itself. And so when we think about these laws, specifically as it relates to the Ten Commandments being moral law and the others being ceremonial, are these two commands, the two greatest, not somehow moral laws because they're not in the Ten Commandments? Of course not. Of course they're moral. But when we think about the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are included in what is done away with in Christ. Um, Turn, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. There are lots and lots of passages that uh, talk about the old law being done away with, the law of Moses being done away with. But what I'd like to do is give you three examples that talks specifically in terms of what we might call the Ten Commandments. Um, let's, let's begin in verse 1. Do we begin again, 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 1, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. We have come and we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we think of we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, we don't have time to examine everything that those verses mean. That's rich and deep material there. But he's making this comparison between that which is written on tablets of stone and that which is written by the Spirit and in the Spirit, written on their hearts. And he goes on to describe the law of Moses and how it is a ministry of death written and engraved on stones, verse 7. And it was glorious. It was great. 
so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious, he says. And so, as great as the law of Moses was, he says, what we have in Christ is far, far better. Similar to what we talked about this morning with Hebrews. But as it relates to our study tonight, what is the only law that we know of that was actually written on tablets of stone? Specifically on tablets of stone that Moses brought back down with him? The Ten Commandments, right? And if you want to say, well, the rest of the law was too, that's, that's fine. We can maybe infer that from the text. I don't know if it's a necessary inference, but we could infer that. It still would have included the Ten Commandments as well. Turn now to Romans chapter 7. Let me give you the second of three New Testament passages. Here Paul, in writing to the Romans, is going to use an example from from marriage and the laws of marriage. And how when someone's spouse dies, they are free to remarry. So in verse 4, he says, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that you should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So again, he's saying, we died in Christ. We're not married to the old covenant anymore. No, now we can be married to Christ and to His covenant. Well, according to the arbitrary distinctions of moral law and ceremonial law, that would mean we can put off all the parts of the law of Moses except for the Ten Commandments and maybe a few other things. But what is the example that he uses in talking about this law? Keep reading, verse 7. What shall I say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law said, you shall not covet. Where do we find you shall not covet? In the Ten Commandments. The whole point of this section is that we are not under the law of Christ. And glory be to God that we're not because we couldn't keep it perfectly. And he cites this commandment from the Ten Commandments in order to make his point. that We're not under that law and not under that system of law. And then maybe as it relates to the Sabbath day specifically, let's turn to our third passage, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, and verse 16. Now, verse 14, remember, he talks about how you're buried with Christ in baptism, verse 12. You're raised with Him through faith in the working of God. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. He's forgiving you all trespasses. Verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The old law is nailed to the cross. Verse 16, he's making application. 
So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance, the true reality, is of Christ. Now that word Sabbath there is in the plural, Sabbaths. And uh, since you were here this morning and you heard everything that I said on that, uh, you know that there was a system of Sabbaths, right? The Sabbath day, but then there was also these other Sabbaths. We have the seven feasts, we have uh, uh, the seven years, and there's a Sabbath year where the land rests, and then there's that year of Jubilee, seven times seven. All of that's related to that idea of Sabbath. And he says, no one should judge you. No one should look down upon you or say that this is something that you have to do. You have to keep this. If we go down to verse 20, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and the doctrines of men. He says you should not be conformed to these things. Let no one judge you in regard to Sabbaths because you are not under that law anymore. Um, Okay, so that's the intellectual argument. But I want to make one more point in regard to this. The biggest problem was saying we have to keep the Sabbath day. Now, I know it says should Christians keep the Sabbath. We'll get to that. But the biggest problem with saying we have to keep the Sabbath day practically is that we need to be careful not to make God's greater rest that He promises physical and earthly and about observing a day. Because Christ's rest is not a physical rest. I understand Colossians 2 to mean that if you personally want to observe some kind of Sabbath, then then you could. Let no one judge you one way or the other in that. But, before you obligate yourself to keeping the Sabbath day as it's found in the old law, educate yourself as to what that entails. Don't make a rash vow. Know what it is that you're observing and the restrictions included in that. Six days you are to work, but there is not to be work on the seventh day. That's the basic command from Exodus chapter 20, verses 9 and 10. So what is forbidden on the Sabbath day? Not working, of course. But other passages indicate that that would include leaving one's place, travel beyond a certain distance. It would include agricultural activities of different kinds. It would include kindling a fire, gathering wood, conducting business, carrying burdens, and treading the wine presses and loading donkeys. We see from these other texts that all talk about these things as breaking the Sabbath if you do them. And if we made application to to these things, this concept of not working to modern times, it would encompass much more. All of it would require a focus on God for the day. Now, obviously, that's a good thing, isn't it? But it is not a required thing for us to give up all work in order to do this. So, be sure of what it is you're committing yourself to before saying, I'm going to keep the Sabbath as we find it in the Old Testament. But even more importantly, perhaps, 
This is not something that we can bind on other people. If you decide that this is something that you want to do, think carefully about that. But you have no right to require others to observe or feel superior because you do or look down on others because they don't. And most importantly, don't miss the point of what the Sabbath day was all about to begin with. Whether you take the position, whether one takes the position that we must observe the Sabbath day on Saturday or that the Lord's Day, Sunday, has somehow replaced the seventh day as a Christian Sabbath. And let me say, just as an aside, it's probably wise for us to set aside Sunday as a day where we're going to rest and we're not going to be involved in a bunch of things and we're going to focus on God. All of that's good. But if it becomes something that we want to bind on others and say this is something that we have to do, this reasoning fails to see the true significance of both the old Sabbath and the rest that we have in Jesus Christ. Remember, the Sabbath day came at the end of what? At the end of six days of labor. Six days of labor led to a seventh day of rest, making the Sabbath day a day of completion, a day of perfection. Just like God worked for six days, and He rested on the seventh from all His labors because His creation was complete. And that day, that seventh day, pointed forward to when rest and fellowship with God could be completed. But it was still limited, wasn't it? We talk about the limits that God placed upon His people when they came into that covenant with the law of Moses. Maybe the best example is we think about the tabernacle and God came into the tabernacle and later the temple and it showed God had fellowship with His people. But that fellowship was limited. If you wanted to go into the most holy place, you couldn't. Unless you were the high priest, unless it was on the Day of Atonement, and unless you had made all of the proper sacrifices and so forth in order to do that. There was fellowship, but it was limited. And so too with the Sabbath day. Maybe not to the same extent. But it is one day a week. And there is rest. But it is limited. Because six days you still have to work. And work hard by the sweat of your brow. The Sabbath day was limited to one day of rest, showing its imperfection. But just as we can have boldness in Christ to enter the most holy place to a greater and full fellowship with God through Jesus Christ, through His flesh, through the veil that was torn in two, so too when we think about the Sabbath day, God's rest was not achieved by giving one day each week for His people to rest. But when we are able to give our entire lives over to Him in fellowship, provision, and deliverance. That Sabbath rest. It is in Jesus and the Messianic age in which we live that God's Sabbath rest is realized. Every day. Every day for us can be a Sabbath day. Every year can be a Sabbath year. Every life can be lived in the spiritual jubilee of freedom and restoration because of Jesus. The Sabbath day. The Sabbath day was just a physical shadow of the spiritual reality. And because we're physical beings, we can get awfully caught up in those physical shadows 
But over and over and over, the New Testament authors tell us, don't be satisfied with the shadow. Don't desire to return to the shadow. Because Christ is the reality, which leads us to the ultimate rest of heaven. Maybe one through three are sufficient to intellectually see this. But if we really want to convince people that this is not what Sabbath is about, this morning's lesson and this last point are where it's at. We have something far greater than one day of rest. We have a lifetime and an eternity of spiritual rest as the people of God. Amen? And aren't we so glad that we do? If you're not yet a Christian tonight, should you observe the Sabbath day? Well, I want to offer much more than one day of rest. Jesus Christ offers you true and lasting eternal rest. If you will come to Him, take His yoke upon you. Learn of Him and follow Him and do what it is He's commanded. Put Christ on in baptism that you might rise to walk in newness of life, being part of the people of God who have that true spiritual rest. And if you're already a Christian and you realize you've been distracted by physical things and you've forgotten the rest that is in Christ, well, one of the things that Christ has given you to help you in those times are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're here for you, to pray for you, to pray with you. Won't you come now? While together we stand and while we sing. I am resolved no longer.